Lord. Exodus 25, verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're looking at all things tabernacle, and once again the tabernacle is simply a fancy word to say the tent of meeting. The tent that God made with his people in their wilderness journeys through uh, their departure from Egypt into the holy promised land of Israel. And the tabernacle later became replaced by the temple. So they're essentially the same uh, function, just one was portable and was moved around the desert, the other was stable and set on its foundations in Jerusalem. All things tabernacle, that's what we're looking at. Yesterday, we took the kids in the youth group, about 20 of them, on the church bus to see NBA basketball star Dwayne Wade, who has now moved back to Chicago to play for the Bulls after many years at the Miami Heat. Streets were blocked on the south side. Police were covering the event. Dozens and dozens of buses and hundreds and hundreds of kids, I think they were shooting for 1,000 to come, were pressing in to play games and to get close to Dwayne Wade and maybe to get an autograph or selfie or to actually touch him. One of the kids, when they got back from the bus, I just was the bus driver. I went there, dropped them off, and came here for our archery event. But when I got back with the kids, one of them said, I got to touch Dwayne Wade's feet. <laughs> you know, most of the kids didn't get to say hi to him because there were so many people crowding him or touch him, but somebody touched his shoes. Wow. What if... We could have gotten a personal invitation to actually sit down with Wayne Wade in his home, his mansion, and have an evening dinner with him. That would have been pretty cool. But what the Bible is telling us in this portion of God's Word is we have something much, much greater, a greater privilege, a weightier invitation for us to come, not to some ball player's house or event, but into the presence of the living God, the creator of heavens and earth, who lived for you, died for you, rose again for you, and now reigns in heaven for you and invites you to come and sit at his table and to know Him forever and ever. Isn't it true that the psalmist didn't say, better is one day on the courts of the United Center watching the Bulls play, but he said, better is one day in your courts, O Yahweh, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, the psalmist says, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked, or to go and serve as an usher at a game where I might get a glimpse of an NBA player, or maybe his autograph. I would rather be a, a doorkeeper, an usher in the church the janitor, than just to be anywhere with anyone else in the world. I know all of us want to be close to important people. Of course, we would want to go meet someone famous and maybe have them call us their friend. Of course, that's something many of us would long for. We want to be important. We want to be close to powerful people and powerful things and ideas. We want to touch glorious things, and, and we want to touch even just the shoes of a famous person if we could. We get excited just for that. Glimpse and rush of giddiness. But... God says to us today in his word, I'm inviting you into something much deeper, much better. You can come and sit at my feet. As God told the people, build a tent, put an ark in it, the ark of the covenant. The ark was literally God's footstool. That's where his feet rested upon the earth. 
And God said, you can come and meet with me, sit at my feet, I will teach you, I will forgive your sins, I will always love you. Haven't you heard of the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, just bleeding, bleeding, a feminine flow of blood, and she couldn't get it to stop, and doctors and money, the greatest technology of the day, couldn't stop this. But what did she do? She just said, if I could just touch the feet, the hem, the edge of Jesus' garment, just a tiny touch, then I know I can be healed. And power healed her that day from the Lord. And she was saved, the Bible tells us. Wouldn't it be enough for us to stop running after all the other distractions and just to come into God's presence today, to meet with Him, to be where He is in fellowship? This is an invitation God's given us. It's an invitation to come, even a command, a call, come and worship me. Meet with me today. Fellowship with me. Fellowship with my holiness, my majesty, my awesomeness in my very own holy courts, in my innermost chambers. And what's the ticket to fellowship with God? Forgiveness. It says, come and be forgiven so that you can have fellowship with me. Come and have your sins cleansed and atoned for so you can meet with the living God, the Holy One. And God says, here's how you're going to do it. I'm going to have you build a tent. I'm going to give you all the instructions all the furniture, even down to the oils that you use, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it so that I will be pleased and we can have a relationship for eternity. So I want you to look at the picture here. Um, if you go to the next slide just for a second, we'll go back to this one. Look at the picture of the tabernacle layout. Just, we're, going to, we're going to switch off uh, from this, so just get a quick mental snapshot. It's a big courtyard. So like a big fenced-in yard, you know, bigger than anything we'd have in Chicago, obviously, for someone's yard. And then there's the tent, which is the, the thing up in the upper left, which has layers of uh, this roof and walls and, and uh, curtains on it. And that's just basically a big, hairy tent. And that's what God said to build, a big, hairy tent where I will come and meet with you. Okay, let's go back to the first slide again. We're going to look at what's the purpose of this tabernacle or this tent. We're going to look at the plan that God gave them for it. We're going to look at... Um, the pattern of what that means for us today and what that means as Christians. So if we could put the lights back on. Um, I think we're gonna need a little bit of light. Maybe we could, uh, can you guys see that? You can see that. Let's look at the purpose of the tabernacle first. The first purpose God gave this tent to his people Israel was for fellowship, as I've already mentioned. But let's just explore that a minute. Worshiping in the presence of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The summary that we could read in chapter 29, verses 42 through 46, say this. Chapter 29, verses 42 through 46. You can read it with me if you have your Bible open. He says, build this tabernacle. Because here he says in verse 42, is the tent of meeting before Yahweh, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. Conversation with God. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified or set apart for my, not for my glory, sanctified by my glory. That's an important phrase we'll look at in a minute. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate, or once again, sanctify or set apart, make it holy. I will make that tent holy, the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron, the priest, and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I and Yahweh, their God. And this is the point of life. This is the reason we were created, to worship and know the living God. He says, I will be with you, and I will be yours, and you will be mine. 
From the beginning to the end of Scripture, you see this covenant promise. You can trace it through. And right here, God says, this is where it's going to happen. In a very special way in this tent, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a rectangular courtyard and a rectangular tent. And then inside that was a special holy room, the Holy of Holies. And that was a cube, a perfect box, a cube. But what God is saying is not, I'm going to come and live in a box and you can just tote me around because I'm that kind of portable God. But he's saying, even though you can't box me in and contain me, even as King Solomon prayed when he dedicated the, the actual temple in Jerusalem, and then Stephen, the, the martyr who was preaching the gospel and got stoned for his faith, even these two godly men said, God, you're higher than the heavens. How can they contain you, much less this temple made with human hands? We can't box you in, but for some reason the God who's immense and above the heavens and earth has decided to come down and to live in this tent for a while and to meet with us specially in this little box, which is no bigger than this pulpit. If I was to turn it on its side, the Ark of the Covenant is about this side. Lay it down horizontally. God says, I'm going to dwell right there. That's where I'm going to be. You can meet with me there. If you want to talk to me, learn from me, have your sins forgiven, that's where it happens fellowship. The second purpose of the tabernacle is forgiveness. Forgiveness and, we could say, atonement. Cleansing of sins, forgiveness of sins. What was happened, it was being secured right here in this place. Right on the bronze altar that we'll look at in a minute. As animal sacrifices were made, they were pointing to the future work of Jesus, of course, who would forgive our sins as the perfect high priest, the perfect Lamb of God. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 9 says in verse 24. Christ, our high priest, entered not into the holy places made with hands, a tent, which are simply copies of the true things, which are the heavenly things which are to come. And now he's appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. And he hasn't just gone into a tent in the desert. He's gone into the very presence of God on our behalf and secured our forgiveness, washed us with his own blood. The third purpose of the tabernacle is a future glimpse of glory. Now, you might think that the tabernacle was simply like a little model in the desert of a tent or tabernacle or temple up in heaven. But that's not really the way the book of Hebrews describes it. It's not like, here's the little copy on earth. Go ahead, Moses, build that because there's something up in heaven that looks kind of like this. No, actually what Hebrews says is there are things to come in the future, a future glory, a future new heaven and new earth. And that's what God's going to bring one day down to where we live. But this little tabernacle is like a representative of the future heaven. It's not like you could point your finger way up into the sky and say, you see that constellation up there in that planet? Heaven is somewhere up there, and up there somewhere is a tent made of goat skins and ram's hair and, you know, badgers or sea cows. And, and so he's not saying up there is a tent and you just build a little scale model of it down here. He's saying, no, there's a greater glory to come, and this is just a little foretaste, a little hint of what I'm going to bring to you in the end. Right here in the beginning of Exodus 25, God says to Moses, the Lord says, Yahweh says, speak to the people of Israel, and he gives them these instructions. He says this seven times in this section. Speak to the people of Israel. At the end of the section, the seventh time he says it, he's talking about the seventh day. At the end of chapter 31, he says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to take a Sabbath. The holy Sabbath day, the seventh day. Creation, six days, the day of rest, when God stopped his work, the seventh day. He's saying... After all the work you're going to do on this temple, this tabernacle, I might interchange those words. It's okay. They, they basically mean the same thing. If After all the work you do, it's going to be a lot of work. There's going to be a lot of gold and stone and, and curtains and all these things. Animals are being sacrificed. After all that, don't forget the purpose of this thing is rest. 
You're going to have heavy animals you're dragging in, slaughtering, you're bloody, you're washing yourself, you're burning things all day, you're carrying firewood, you're baking bread, you're praying, you're meeting with me in these rituals. But don't forget the point of it all, the seventh day. This is so that you can have rest in my presence. You know, when you get those emails from Living Hope Church, hey, on Sunday, here's your job. When I have deadlines every week to preach a sermon or teach Bible studies, I have to remember, we have to remember the purpose of it all is to meet with God, to know Him, to rest in Him, even as we work. Even as I texted Dante yesterday and said, hey, I hope you have a restful day. And he says, yeah, I hope that'll happen at work. Even at work, we can be at rest if we do it mindful that God is with us, that God is in us, and God is working through us. A future glimpse of glory is what God is giving His people. A couple principles are highlighted as we begin looking at the purpose of the tabernacle. Look at me once again at chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. One principle you see right off the bat is that worship is commanded and commended. Now what do I mean? God commands it, but also He says, hey, this is good for you. It's a good thing. It's your duty, but it should also be your delight. Amen? Are you guys delighting in worship right now? I hope so. If you need a little extra help, just stand up, slap yourself in the face, walk around, whatever it takes to delight in God. Come on, delight in God. It doesn't come naturally. You have to preach to your heart like the psalmist did. Seek his face. It's your duty. God's inviting you for sure. Please, the pastor could say every Sunday, come, let me just invite you to worship the Lord. Invite you in. Yes, but also we could hear this, command. God commands to come and meet with Him. God commands you to present yourself before Him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. Because this is the purpose of your life. Life is worship. And worship is life. Worship is life-giving. This is what you were made for. If you do not not come into the presence of the Lord, you're doing yourself a great eternal disservice. God would be a bad God if He didn't command us to come and worship Him at His footstool and come into His presence with joy and thanksgiving. You were created for this. The Father seeks worshipers, Jesus said in John 4. He's seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the song that we sung today out of Psalm 27, verse 8, you say to us, Yahweh, seek my face. Our hearts reply, your face we seek. It's my command. It's commended to me. It's my duty and my delight. This is why the tabernacle was given. Another general principle that arises in chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. They had to take responsibility. They had to go get some tools and some supplies. They had to contribute, and they did it joyfully to the sanctuary. They were actually bringing so many supplies that later in uh, chapter 30. One, I believe, 36 actually, Moses said, stop, stop, that's enough. You've already brought too much. We can't handle anymore. Thank you. See, their hearts were willing to respond to that command. They took responsibility. They built the sanctuary. They built the furniture, and God came. It's just like the, the prophet says, Isaiah chapter 40, prepare the way for Yahweh, and the glory of the Lord will come, and all flesh will see it. John the Baptist, prepare the way for the Lord. Repent of your sins. Share what you have with the poor. Stop extorting people and harassing them. Prepare your life. Live a life that would say to God, I'm ready for you. I'm waiting for your glory to fill me and meet with me. And I want to know you and fellowship with you. Like the old baseball movie, if you build it, what? He will come. 
prepare a place. Get the foretaste of the glory to come by just doing the small things now, the small hard things, the, the things of discipline that take practice. And they're painful sometimes and you don't want to do them, but if you do the things that God has laid out for you, reading the scriptures, praying, meeting together, serving the poor, helping the weary, God says, I will meet with you in that. Prepare yourself. And he says in verse 9, do it exactly as I show you. Prepare it just like this. We call this in the Presbyterian church, the regulative principle of worship. What's that mean? God regulates our worship. It doesn't mean it's regular. No, it's supernatural. But he says, I'm going to define and determine how I want you to come to me. You don't just show up whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. You do it exactly as I command you and the pattern that I will show you. Even notice later that the perfume and the anointing oils and the incense that they would burn in the temple had to be exactly according to the secret recipe, like KFC. You know, It's this way or no way. This is how we do it. He even says, if you make this anointing oil and aroma in another way, or if you use it for another purpose outside the temple, you'll die. Now, this perfume is to die for, literally. If you get the recipe of the incense wrong, you're done. I want it like this, God says, exactly like this and no other way. And if you do it that way, I will come. I will show up. I will show off. That's the third principle we see from all the way in chapter 29, verse 44, is that God will show up and show off whenever he wants to. And it's not really going to happen by our magic tricks we do in the temple or our mechanical worship where we say, I prayed and you didn't do it. I put in my money in the vending machine and you didn't spit it out. He says, I will come when I come. I promise you I will. But I'll do it when I come. I I am sovereign. I move where I will. Just like the Spirit of God, Jesus said, is like the wind. He comes in when you least expect it. And then he, he blows around in a way you can't control him. He is God. And we are not. What makes this tabernacle so special is not what we do. How loud we sing, that doesn't really affect whether God shows up. Now, if you close your heart down and have an icy cold stare on your face and you don't participate in worship, I, I'm pretty sure God's not going to show up and reveal himself to you. But if you simply take those steps of opening your arms up and just saying, God, help me today. I don't even want to worship you, but heal my heart. Make me willing. Lift your your eyes and your heart to the throne of heaven and ask him, he will come. Now, this is something that God says to us. It's not how you build the temple or the tabernacle. It's not how you mix the spices that make me show up. He says, I still come sovereignly. But he says, how will the temple be sanctified in chapter 29, as we read earlier? It's by my glory. Now, he doesn't say, if you sanctify yourself, then my glory will show up. He says, no, the whole thing is sanctified or set apart or made possible and made holy by my glory. I will do it when I want to, and that's my glory. You know, if you're really rich or really powerful, you kind of get to do what you want to do sometimes in the world. And God says, I'm the king. I do whatever I want. When my glory shows up, that's when everything changes. That's when everything becomes holy. That's when this tabernacle actually matters. A few years ago, we were eating breakfast a group of guys at Valois Restaurant in Hyde Park. We still do that today. A whole new group of guys. We were eating breakfast, and some guys were like, oh, what are you guys doing? You're praying over there, reading your Bibles? Yeah, where do you go to church? Living Hope. Never heard of it, they said. We go to <clears throat> church, which is one of the biggest in the city. 
Our church is so big, we could fit most of the churches in this city inside of our building. Well, good for you, we said. Just a sec. Okay, sure. So we said, that's great. We had the smiles on our faces and all, and we're like, God bless you, brothers, for that wonderful encouragement you just gave us. You know, your church is bigger than all those. You know what the prophet uh, Jeremiah says in chapter 7, verse 4? The people of God were going around in their day after they built the temple, and they were saying, we got the temple, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. That's literally what Jeremiah 7, 4 says. That was their chant, that was their cheer, they were boasting that we have the temple, we did what we were supposed to, and we're the Jews, and we're awesome, and nobody else has the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple. The church, the church, the church. Our church, my church. God says, size doesn't matter. You see how little this little holy of holies room is? You see how little this little ark of the covenant is? That That's where I dwell. That's where I dwell. It doesn't matter how big the church is. It matters if I am there and if you are there. And not whether you're boasting in anything else, but Christ. Your only boast. Your only hope. That's when God shows up. None of our worship has any value if God is not the point of it. If you show up today to get anything less than God, He might give you something other. But what's the point of it? He's the only thing you really need. He's the best thing that you have. Nothing matters unless God is your hope and your boast. And that's the point of the tabernacle. God said, hey, Israel had their own 9-11 back in the days when the Babylonians destroyed their temple. And that was worse than the Twin Towers falling when, when the Babylonians came and destroyed what was most holy and important to them. And he did it twice in their history. Then the Romans came and did it in 70 AD. He said, the point is not the tabernacle or the temple. The point is me. If I'm not there, there's no room no reason that this should even be here. Let's just wipe it off the face of the earth and start over. I'll send you my son. I'll show you the true tabernacle, the true temple, God in the flesh. Let's look now at the plan of the tabernacle. This is when it gets kind of fun, hopefully. Some pictures will be flashed up so you can pay attention. I hope I don't lose you in this. The plan of the tabernacle is essentially the blueprints. Let's look at the first picture here of the ark. The ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony. You've probably seen pictures of this before in Indiana Jones and whatnot. Okay. That's all fun and, and nice, but this is how it actually was, was given in the Scripture. Chapter 25, verse 10 tells us that the last thing to be built in the tabernacle is actually the first thing to be described in the instructions. You get that? This is the last thing they would actually build to put inside the tent after everything was constructed, but it's the first thing God describes, which means it's really, really what? Exactly. You guys are quick. It's only three feet by nine inches long and two feet by four inches wide. It's made of wood covered in gold. And then it's got these rings with poles because you can't touch the Ark of the Covenant. We all know Indiana Jones, you know, didn't do that, but all the German soldiers did and they all died. That's what would happen. You would die. Do you remember the story of 2 Samuel chapter 6? When Uzzah, one of the servants of God, was walking alongside this cart. They had a cart being pulled by oxen and they weren't carrying the Ark on its poles like they were supposed to. And they had it on a cart, and they're just rolling along this bumpy, muddy road, and the ark slips off and slides off the cart and falls to the ground. And Uzzah scoops down and lunges and dives and tries to catch the ark to keep it from hitting the mud. And guess what happened? He died instantly. You know what the people did after that? They, they began taking six steps. Every six steps they would carry the ark, they would stop right there after six steps and make a sacrifice to the Lord to say, Thank you, Lord! <laughs> I'm still alive! Thank you! Woohoo! <laughs> Wow, you are holy. Now, take six more steps and do it again. Kill an animal. Thank you that we are not dead. 
You know what Jonathan Edwards said about that account of Uzzah touching the ark? He said, Uzzah made the mistake of thinking that his hands were cleaner than the mud. He thought, I'm not a dirty sinner. I better save the ark from touching the ground. Think again. God is holy. This is a holy box. This is a holy piece of furniture like you've never seen before. God says, I will dwell there in that place, and you will do exactly as I say to do. Put some poles on that thing and carry it like that. And then we'll see that all the furniture essentially has rings and poles. That's how they carried all the holy furniture throughout the wilderness wanderings. And right there on top of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, you see these cherubim, these figures of angelic creatures. We're not sure exactly what they look like, but they had wings and their wings were touching. They're symbolizing the guardians of God's holiness. Just like in the Garden of Eden. It's a reflection of the original garden where God met with his people in fellowship and then sin came and broke that fellowship and he says, you can't come here anymore as sinners, as you are. You cannot come. There's an angel with a flashing sword. There are angelic beings guarding my presence from my people because I'm holy. And then there's the covering. That lid on the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat or literally in the Hebrew, it's called the covering Cover, because the word really means atonement. And atonement is when God covers your sins and says, I will take care of that. I will cover you in the blood of the sacrifice. I will cover you with my grace and my sacrifice. And so this cover that sits on top of the ark, the mercy seat, the Bible says in Psalm 80 and Psalm 99, this is actually God's footstool. This is like his, his footrest. Like if you have your favorite recliner at home and you've got your little ottoman or your footrest or whatever that is, you prop your feet up on there when you're nice and comfortable. That's your favorite spot, right, when you come home from a long day's work. God says, this ark in the mercy seat is my footstool. The, the mercy seat's actually the throne of God. He says, it says in the Bible he's enthroned between the cherubim, and the ark itself is where he places his feet. Essentially, he's saying, hey, you're not going to get to see God, but you're going to have the privilege of worshiping around his ankles. That's exciting. Remember Exodus chapter 24 when the people saw the pavement under God's feet and they got really excited that they didn't die and they ate and drank with him and had a meal? They got a glimpse of his glory and his holiness and it was amazing. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is, the presence of the holy God dwelling on earth. He really was here in the desert, in that tabernacle. His glory filled that place and the, the priest, only the priest could go in there and meet with him once a year and say, I... I came out alive, I got to meet where God's feet dwell on this earth. And it was a glorious, once-in-a-lifetime experience. You could say that inside this ark, because the, the ark also contained the testimony of the law, or the covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, because they're inside this box, you could say that this box is really like the heart of the universe in its day. I mean, this is where God put all of his love and all of his glory. I'm putting my law in there, which tells you all about who I am, my heart. And I'm putting my glory there. I'm going to dwell in this place. That's like the center of gravity of the universe right here in this tent. Amazing. The Egyptians and the Hittite people of the day also kept copies of their treaties and their laws inside little special boxes. And they placed those at the feet of their idols to say, this is really important. This treaty we make, you better not break it because the idol's watching you, but here's the living God, not an idol, who says, this is how important my law is. Put it inside the most holy place, inside the most holy box, and I'm going to come down there and dwell in your midst, right there where my law is. Do exactly as I tell you, and your life will be glorious. Let's go to the next slide. The next is the table. 
The table is described in Exodus 25 as a place where there were 12 loaves of bread that were baked every week. 12 fresh loaves, you know, delicious. They had oil they would pour on top of them. That's what these oil containers are on top of the bread. And once again, poles through the rings to carry the table. But this was called the bread of the presence. The, the purpose of the table is to show us that God is with us and that God is a nourishing God who is present with his people and gives them life. Didn't Jesus say that? I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never die. Exodus 24, remember the covenant meal with the priests and the elders? They ate and drank with God and they didn't die. The table we will share today, the communion table, the holy communion of the Lord's Supper, God invites us and commands us, come and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and you will have life. I will be present with you in this meal. God invites us to dine with him, to feast on him and to live. The next picture shows the golden lampstand. In the holy tabernacle, in the holy place, there was also a lampstand. It had seven branches, one in the center like the trunk of a tree, six branches on either side, reminding us of what? Perhaps the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It had almond branches pictured in its gold work, a solid gold piece where oil, beaten, precious, pure olive oil could burn clean and long all night, and they would keep this lamp burning perpetually, consistently, constantly, to remind us that God is our light, and he's the life of the world. He gives us everything we have and everything we need. Zechariah chapter 4, the entire chapter is about a prophecy of the prophet seeing the lampstand in heaven, being pumped full of oil and burning all the way. And he says this represents something really important. Not just it, it gives light to the tabernacle, which is kind of a dark place because it's all covered up, but it represents the eyes of the Lord. The seven eyes of the Lord is how he describes it. God is here. He's watching you always. His eyes are always open and enlightened to your needs and to the darkness of your situation. And then what does Jesus do? He says, I'm the light of the world, and when I leave, you're going to be the light of the world. What he says is, I never stop seeing your pain. Whatever darkness you're going through, I'm constantly aware and watching and helping, and now I'm going to send you into the darkness to be the light of the world as well. The golden lampstand. Let's look at the next one, the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle itself, as you see, is surrounded with this courtyard, and there's a curtain all the way around it, kind of like a fence. And God gave explicit directions. We, we won't take the time to read exactly how it was all made, but you can read for yourself. I've been studying this for weeks, and it's amazing the work that went into it, the craftsmanship, the bronze bases for the columns, the silver hooks that hang the curtains, all of it specified, the pomegranates designed in the fabrics, the, the cherubim, once again, the angelic beings appearing in the fabric work, beautiful colors in the the front entrance to the tent of meeting. And you can't get in anywhere else but one way in the front. And nobody can just go into the tabernacle but the, but the priest. And only one priest can get into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, once a year. It's very limiting how it's set up. But very amazing. Even the, the tabernacle or the tent itself, as you see, it looks like the flag of France, you know, red, white, and blue, or maybe like a giant horseshoe magnet there, you see, with the two ends. But that's actually just showing the different layers of the curtains. The inner layer was like a fine blue, beautiful fabric. It wouldn't touch the rain or the elements. The sun wouldn't strike it. Then there was another layer on top of that of uh, ram's wool dyed red. 
And there's another layer on top of that. I'm sorry, the goat skin was next. Then the tan ram skin dyed red. And then finally there was like sea cow or maybe badger skin, which is kind of like maybe more water repellent. Four layers of curtain. Did you, you ever catch that when you're reading the Bible? He had four curtains covering this tent. And then there's inside that tent a veil. Maybe the most important fabric in the whole place. A veil separating the Holy of Holies, which is the small cubicle room where the Ark of the Covenant was, from the holy place, which is just the more general area where the table and the, the candlesticks were. And this veil prevented people from seeing the Ark and seeing the presence of God. And there was a little incense stand that we'll look at in a minute, which put up smoke so that it covered like a screen that whole area. That veil, of course, is what ripped in half at what point in history? What point in history did that veil tear from top to bottom? Of course, on the cross of Christ, the veil tore from top to bottom. This was a tall veil in the temple. It wasn't something that you could just like start tearing it from the bottom and rip it up. It, it was God tearing the temple open, opening access for all people to come through Christ into his holy of holy of holiest presence. And it's all pictured right here in the tabernacle. Hebrews 10 says Christ opened up a living way, a new and living way through his body that is through the curtain. We've come through the curtain of his body into the presence of a God who wants to meet with us and know us and love us. And then the next picture shows the bronze altar. The bronze altar was actually fairly large. It was about four foot six, taller than some of you. You, you know, but you can see over it if you're a little bit taller. And you would you'd have this seven foot by six inch, probably not quite as wide as the stage here uh, from front to back. And it was a square. And there was probably a ramp that led up to it so you could like drag or walk up the animal to be sacrificed. Imagine getting a big bull up over a four foot six ledge to put it on top of this altar. And on that altar were four horns. It's kind of blurry, but there were four corners with horns that were made as one part of the altar. And those horns may represent something like God's strength, or we're not sure exactly, but there are clues in the scripture, and one clue is from Psalm um, 118, verse 27, which tells us to bind the festal sacrifice, which is like, hey, there's a festival or a sacrifice happening, bind the animal to the horns of the altar and sacrifice it to Yahweh. So you could tie your animal there, probably had some ropes hanging off of them, maybe, like some leashes, and that's where you tie the animal before you would sacrifice it to the Lord and burn it upon the altar to make atonement for sins. In a few weeks, we're going to look at the priests and the priest's duties in the temple. But let me just say this. They had three sacrifices that they had to make before they could even be priests, before their ordination and commissioning. They had to sacrifice three things. First, the, the sin offering. One animal had to die for their sins so that they could just say, okay, now I'm cleansed. Now I can go work on behalf of the Israelites. The second one was the whole burnt offering, which said, we're burning this animal completely as an expression of our complete devotion to you, God. Everything we have is yours. And then the third one was the wave offering, which is kind of funny because it's like, hey, they would wave the parts of the animal up in the air, and it's called the fellowship offering. So it's kind of like saying, hey, like fellowshipping with God, wave offering. It's just kind of a funny thing that just so happened like that. I'm kind of weird like that, kind of cheesy, but that's how I remembered it. The wave offering is a fellowship offering. All these three were necessary just for the priest to get into the place to then make the other sacrifices, which is morning and evening, day after day, month after month, year after year, for hundreds of years and centuries, the morning and evening sacrifice of burning a lamb, sacrificing a lamb upon the altar. And of course, once again, 
Hebrews chapter 9, which we read earlier, says that Christ was sacrificed once to accomplish all the needs of his people. Forgiveness, fellowship, a complete life lived for him, it happens through his work and his work alone. Let's look at the next, altar of incense. Chapter 30 describes this. It's a one and a half foot square, a small little thing set up about chest high, and you burn incense on it. Of course, the special recipe we referred to earlier, cinnamon, olive oil, myrrh, very sweet smelling spices. You mix it up in very large batches because you're going to keep this thing burning constantly. All day long, you feed this fire with the incense, and it releases a, a fragrant aroma before the Lord. In the Bible, the, the prayers of God's people are really described as incense before him. Do you remember in Luke chapter 1, when Jesus, before he was born, his cousin John the Baptist was being born, and his father was a priest, Zechariah. And when he went into the, the temple to offer incense, it says that the people were gathered outside praying at the same moment. They were praying, and he was offering incense, and it all wafted up into God's presence as a pleasing aroma. Do you remember what Revelation chapter 8 says? Let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 say this. About how our prayers can rise to heaven as sweet incense before the Lord. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Let me just ask you, when's the last time you really prayed and it felt good? It felt like, you know what? I needed to connect with God. Or you thought, you know what? I, I think God is pleased with my prayer. So many times we beat ourselves up and we don't pray because, you know, we think it doesn't work or we think, you know, God didn't listen to my prayer or we just don't feel like praying. But how many times have you entered into the presence of the Lord and said, you call me, you invite me, you command me, and here I am to offer all my needs, all my fears, all my 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 burdens and my sins, everything. I'm going to release it to you. And do you know what God is saying when you are honest with Him and actually pray to Him? You can just even cry it out, yell it out. As long as it's from a sincere, honest heart and you're trusting in Him to hear you, He says, it's sweet. I'm pleased. You can leave that session of prayer feeling like you've done what God planned for you to do from all eternity and into all eternity. This is what you were made for, to know your Father, to worship Him. I'm not sure why, but when I was reading the news this week and I saw about the 71-year-old man who was watering his lawn on Western Avenue, and the guy rode up on the bike and then 30 minutes later came back with a friend on the bike and he grabs the old man as he's watering his lawn and he, he, he starts wrestling with him and the hose is going everywhere and then he throws him to the ground and shoots him in the stomach and then takes his wallet, gets back on his bike and rides away like nothing happened. I, he may have gotten $10 for all we know. He's shooting a 71-year-old man for $10 or so and that's what we have here in Chicago. Now, I hadn't, I hadn't cried for a few months. I read stories like that every day of young children getting shot and killed, but I'm so used to it. But I started weeping when I saw that video and read that story. I just fell on the floor and cried out to God, God, help us, please. 